Can you hear me? Sean told me I was not going to have to deal with the microphone, so I'm glad he remembered. I didn't know what the instructions were. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, some of you may have been here four years ago, perhaps, when I was here to preach Sean's installation service. Uh, it's hard to believe that uh, how many more people uh, there are here today than there were that day, and it's a blessing to see what's happening here in Decatur. If you have your Bibles, and I'm getting a little bit of feedback, I don't know if anybody else is hearing that, uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. And I'd like you, I, I said to Sean, I asked Sean how long he normally preaches, and he told me 40 minutes to an hour, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to come into 35 so you'll like me more. Uh, I don't know if I'll actually live up to that. My watch quit this morning, so, you know. You're going to get when, whatever I've got until I'm done. And Sean says that's okay. So 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, I'd like you to consider two questions this morning that might seem unrelated. Maybe if you have a pen, you might even want to write these down because these are the questions that we're going to be circling around this morning in, the, in, our, in this sermon in these few minutes. And the first question is this. What does it mean to be human? My guess is that's not a question that often crosses your mind, that you spend a great deal of time thinking about, but there are people who actually spend a great deal of time thinking about what does it mean to be human? Can I be more human? Can I be less human? What is, it, what is the essence of being a human? That's one question we're going to consider this morning. What does it mean to be a human? The second question that might seem unrelated, but I think that you'll hopefully see by the end, is actually very related, is this. Why should I obey God? I mean, at one level, it's sort of like your parents, right? Well, because he says so. Right? That's when you ever say that to your kids, maybe I'm the only one. When I don't really have good reasons or I'm not that interested in spending time explaining my reasons, it just comes down to because I said so. I, my kids are older now, two of them in college, because I said so really doesn't work anymore. So I would practice on some other answers uh, in the interim. But we want to consider this morning, why should I, why should you obey God? I mean, there's a, there's a tendency, I, there's a number of obviously wrong answers to that second question. One wrong answer to why should I obey God is to earn his favor. That's, that's in the wrong answer category. That, that we cannot earn God's favor. We can never be good enough. He doesn't love us more because of anything we do. He loves us no less because of anything we do or fail to do. So in the wrong answer category for why I should obey God, you can include, well, so I can earn his favor. Also in the wrong answer category is to earn eternal life. Well, maybe if I'm just good enough. That's not how it works with God either. We don't earn our way to eternal life. We don't earn our way to heaven. There's not something we can do. It's not a big scale where do the good works outweigh the bad works, and if the scale just tilts to the good works side, well, you're in. That's in the wrong answer category. 
I think one answer that's often given in church for why we should obey God is is what I call kind of the guilt answer. It goes something like, well, it's the least you can do after all he's done for you. Right? I see some of you sort of smiling, like you've, you've sort of been guilted with that answer before. It's kind of like, well, it's almost like, come on, man. Like, look at all he's done. Like, can't you just obey? You know, we try this with our kids too, right? Like, I just bought you ice cream. Can you quit fighting in the back seat, right? Th- that this is kind of that answer that sometimes gets told in church. It's almost like it's the least we can do after all he's done for us. And and that answer is not totally false, but I think it actually misses the point of Scripture about why we should obey God. And what I'd like to talk about this morning is, is that second question, why should I obey God, and how it relates to the first question, what does it mean to be human? Because I think those two seemingly unrelated questions, one of which you may almost never think about, what does it mean to be human, is in fact very closely related. These, these questions are actually very closely related. So if you have your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're not going to look at a whole chapter, we're only going to look at a couple verses, and really only a couple words a, few, a very few words in the first few verses of Peter, First Peter, where Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Notice there, so Peter is writing, he's writing to believers, he's writing to believers who are spread across the Roman Empire in various cities. He calls them the elect exiles. He calls them the elect. Now that's a a word you're familiar with. I heard it this morning in the prayer, several times referring to us, rightly so, as the elect. He's writing to an audience of Christians. Elect meaning what it means to all of us, to choose, to select, right? They're, 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 he's writing to those who are selected, who are chosen by God. Notice he, he's going to explain who did the selecting, and what they were selected for, right? We, when we have elections, we select people for certain offices, right? When we elect the president, the president doesn't take over as the district attorney. The president was elected the president, and so the president acts as the president because that's what the president was elected for. An election is for something in particular, and it is by someone in particular. And what we see in this passage is that the election is by God. He's the one who is choosing. We see that in verse 2 where Peter says he's writing to the elect in verse 1, but he says they're elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. 
In other words, it's God the Father who chose. It's God the Father who selected. God the Father, through his foreknowledge, meaning before you did anything, before the people who Peter was writing to did anything, it was his foreknowledge. He knew before. He decided before. God chose because God chose. God chose not because you did something. God chose before you did anything. Peter says, it was because of the foreknowledge of God. His decision was not dependent on how things would play out. His decision was his decision. It was God's decision. And God chose, look what Peter says, what God chose us for, what he elected us for. He said he elected, God the Father elected, for obedience. Is that how you think of election? Like if I asked you before we read these verses and about the doctrine of election, that idea that God chose, and I asked you, chose you for what? Would your answer have been for obedience? Or would your answer have been something maybe more generic like, for salvation, or to declare me righteous, or to make me a child of God, or to be justified. I mean, those things aren't untrue, but would you have included in the list of things you were elected for, the things you were chosen for, would you have included obedience? When Peter describes the elect and, and what they were picked for, what they were selected for, he says they were chosen, they were elect for, this is the purpose, for obedience. They weren't chosen, he doesn't say because of obedience, right? Don't confuse what he's saying. He doesn't say elect because they obeyed. He says they were elect to obey. In other words, when God the Father chose The purpose for which he chose us was to obey. If I gave you a dozen answers, guesses, is that what you would have said you were elect for? Like, would that have made your top 12? This is one of those verses where I'll just admit where the the first, I probably have read it numerous times over the course of being a Christian. I've been a Christian Thank God for as long as I can remember. I don't rem- I, we were sharing this last night. I don't remember a time when I didn't believe. And I'm now 49 years old. I've read through the Bible. And I remember just a few years ago reading this verse. And it's striking me as, as new and odd. Elect, chosen to obey. I guess that's not how I thought what, what I thought the point of election was. It, it, I knew I was supposed to obey. Right, this is back to where we started. I knew I was supposed to obey. And, but I'm not sure I thought about why I was supposed to obey. And I certainly hadn't thought that I was supposed to obey because that's what I was chosen for. But I think that that this idea that we were chosen to obey, that that was the purpose, the goal, the outcome that God was seeking to accomplish when he 
elected, selected, chose me. I think that makes more sense if we step back and understand the story of the Bible. If we step back, sort of pull the lens back from these two verses and say, what is the story of the Bible about? I think it helps make sense of why Peter would say that God the Father's purpose, his goal in election was my obedience. We heard read just a few minutes ago from Genesis chapter 1. If you've, got your, if you've got your Bible there, hold your finger or put your bookmark in 1 Peter and flip back to Genesis chapter 1 because I think what Sean said is something that has really been impressed on me, I think really starting when I went to seminary, and that is that you will not understand the Bible if you do not understand Genesis 1 through 3. I've really, really come to believe that. I think that if you understand Genesis 1 through 3, the Bible will make a whole lot more sense. And if you do not understand Genesis 1 through 3, the Bible will seem very confusing at times. You cannot spend too much time, I would say, in Genesis 1 through 3. And I think two verses in particular are critical to understanding the rest of the Bible. And I think critical to understanding what Peter's getting at in 1 Peter chapter 1. And the verses are in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Where on the sixth day, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God made humans to image him. God made humans to image him. So if we go back to my first question, what does it mean to be human? It means to image God. The most human you can ever be is when you are imaging God. You will never be more human than when you image God. You will be less human. You will be less than you were made to be if you don't image God. The most human person ever to walk the earth was the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ. He was the most human person because he was the best, most perfect image of God. Adam and Eve were made initially as the most human people who ever were. And they became less human, less imagers, less good reflectors, less good depictions of what God is like in Genesis 3. And everything went downhill from, downhill from there. But they were created perfectly, completely, entirely human because they were perfect imagers of God. People have, theologians have speculated how long lapses between day six and Genesis chapter three in the fall. 
How long did they stay in that state where they were perfectly imaging God? We don't know, but what we do know is that's what they were created to do. That was their purpose in life, was to image God. We, we understand what this idea of imaging means. I was yesterday in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, just seeing some of the sites, and I went to the intersection where Rosa Parks got on the bus, the famous site. I don't know if you've been there. You should go check it out. There's an image of Rosa Parks there. It's a statue. It's made to help me see what Rosa Parks looked like. I have a, a, I've heard the name Rosa Parks, but I didn't have any face to associate with that name. And Rosa Parks has passed away in 2005. So if I want to see Rosa Parks, the best way to, for me to understand what she is like is to see the image, the statue of Rosa Parks. It's meant to reflect some of what she is like. Not everything, because the statue doesn't move. The statue doesn't talk. But it gives me some sense of what she is like. That's what images do. They're meant to give us a picture, give us a reflection, give us a depiction of what the real thing is like, of what the thing behind the image is like. And, that, and that's in the same way what we were meant to do. We were meant to be images, perfect images of God. That's what it means to be human, is to be an image, a picture, a depiction of God in creation. That's what it means to be human. And when we sin, we tell lies about God. We say God looks like this when God doesn't look like that. We, we, we suggest, we pretend like we're being an image, but in fact we're being a lie. We're being a false image. We're falsely reflecting what God is like. But what we were made to be, what it means to be human, what, it, what, 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 what we were created to be as humans is perfect imagers of God. And what God said at the end of the sixth day, having created a perfect image, a couple who were a perfect image of himself, he looked at all that he had made and said, that is very good. What was good was that these these imagers were obeying God. Because the only way they could reflect what God is like is to be like God, right? To live, to live holy. I mean, they didn't live like... They, they weren't imagers in the sense that if you look at a human and their physical body, that's what God looks like. Because we know God doesn't have a body other than when Jesus became incarnate. It was their behavior, their holiness, their obedience to God's commands that made them imagers of God. And when they disobeyed, they quit, they, 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 they stopped imaging God because they stopped through their obedience and behavior reflecting what God is like. In other words, what makes us imagers of God is our obedience to God. Because that is what makes us like God. When we act like God would look, when we act like God would act, we are reflecting what God is like. And so that's what we have here in Genesis is we have people who are human in the fullest sense, but they're human in the fullest sense because they are 
obeying God. And God looked at all of that and said, it was good. Good, it was good for people to obey and reflect what God is like. And, and in that moment, however long it lasted, where these people were obeying, perfectly reflecting God, perfectly imaging God, that was as good as it has ever been. That was a world in which there was no sin, there was no pain, there was no heartache, there was no sickness, there was no divorce, there was no premature death, there were no accidents, there, were no, there was no heartbreak. When people obeyed, it was good. When people obeyed, when they acted in the way that they were created to act, when they reflected God, when they imaged God as they were created to do, in that moment, God could look at everything he had made and say, that is good. But of course, that didn't last. Because we know in Genesis chapter 3, people disobeyed. They stopped obeying. And so in that moment, they stopped reflecting God. What, what, remember what God says? He said, don't eat of the fruit. Because in the day you eat, meaning in the day you disobey, what will happen? You will die. Did they die that day? Well, in a sense, they did. Because if death is the absence of life, then when they disobeyed, they lost life as it was created to be. That day they disobeyed, life, good life that God created, ended. Physical existence didn't end. They still physically existed. But life is more than physical existence. Life was created to be more than physical existence. And in the day they ate, the day they stopped imaging God, was the day that life as it was designed to be ended. And yet God in his mercy provided a plan. And so you see throughout the Old Testament that God calls on his people, the Jews, to obey. He calls on them repeatedly to obey. One of a verse that you may have seen on a bumper sticker, Deuteronomy 30:15. God says, "I've put before you blessing and curse." And then he says in Deuteronomy 30:15, "Choose life." We, we often see that as a bumper sticker and related to abortion, but that wasn't the point of the verse. The point of the verse was there's two ways. There's a way of disobedience, which is life, and there is a way, excuse me, there's a way of disobedience, which is death, and there is a way of obedience, which is life, and God is pleading with the people, choose life. And what do they choose? What is the story of the Old Testament that over and over they choose they choose death. They make the same choice that Adam and Eve chose. They chose to disobey. They chose to be less than fully alive. They chose less than to be full imagers as they were meant to be. And so we see in Ezekiel that the, the prophet Ezekiel writes in 36, 26, he says that there's coming a day when you will get a new heart. 
Because the reason the people didn't choose life, the reason they didn't choose to obey, is because their heart was evil. And so the prophet Ezekiel says, there's coming a day where you will get a new heart. Your heart of stone will be replaced with a heart of flesh because you need life. And a stone heart is dead. But a a heart of flesh is coming so that you can live again. Because you've over and over chosen death. And so then Jesus arrives in the early pages of the New Testament. And he tells people, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, he says. He says that he's offering eternal life. Now, there's a, there's a possibility, again, that when we hear that Jesus offers eternal life, what we hear him offering is eternal life. Right? Sometimes when we hear the offer of eternal life, we hear the emphasis on is it being on eternal. Like, it'll be forever. Like, lots of life. Like never-ending life. And Christ does, in fact, offer never-ending life. But I, I would suggest that the emphasis in eternal life is not on eternal. It's on life. He's not just offering eternal physical existence. He's offering eternal life. He's offering that you can live again. We gave that away through Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. We gave away the obedience that is life as it was meant to be. That was life as it was created. And we chose instead death, a life of heartache and pain through our sin. And Jesus comes and says, you can live again. Not just you can live forever. You can live again now. You can live now. As he said, the kingdom is already at hand. Eternal life can begin today if you haven't believed. One of my favorite songs uh, that I listen to often when I walk the dog in the morning is this ta- a song called Death Was Arrested. And there's a line in it that I really I, I just love where they say, Then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That is when death was arrested and my life began. We think of eternal life as being something that someday will happen when Jesus comes again. And Jesus says, you can have life. You can live again. You can image me again. You can be human, fully human, again. Today, the kingdom is already at hand. What he is offering, what Jesus offers, is not something just entirely off in the future where, okay, I've got this this forgiveness of sin, so I'm good when he comes again. I am, and I'm grateful for that. But what about today? Can I live again today? Jesus offers that you can. And he offers that by, by saying, I chose you for obedience. I didn't, chose you, I didn't choose you because of obedience. I didn't choose you because you obey more than someone else. 
Your obedience doesn't earn anything. Your obedience doesn't gain salvation. Your obedience is part of the salvation. I was sharing last night, let me explain that. I was sharing last night that there was a moment, if you asked me to go back, where I could tell you this is the moment where you know, somebody had me pray a prayer of salvation. But I, thinking back, I believed before that. Somebody had me formalize it in some way, but that wasn't the moment I believed. But, but my parents, when that happened, they bought me a Bible, and they wrote in the front cover the date, and that was a great thing. I had that Bible for many years, the Schofield Study Bible with the blue leather cover and my name embossed on the front. Some of you may have had one of those. And I remember in that Bible, there was a footnote in Romans, because it was a study Bible, had footnotes, and it said that salvation as that term is used in the Bible, is meant to refer to three things. It's meant to refer to the fact that I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. That's stuck with me, because I think it is, in fact, an excellent description of the totality of of salvation. I have been saved. There was a moment when I believed, and at that moment, I have been declared right before God. My sins are, are the, the penalty for my sins is taken away. Jesus paid it, and I trusted him, and I have been declared right before God. But I don't always live right before God. And part of what I need to be saved from is not just that penalty of my sin. I need to be saved from the power of sin in my life today. And that's part of the package. And one day I will be saved from the presence of sin. And that's part of the package. That salvation, that three-part salvation, is a package deal. You You can't do it a la carte. And I don't want it a la carte. I don't want just salvation from the penalty of my sins, though I want that. I want salvation from the power of sin today. And Paul says you get that. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says that just as Christ has been resurrected, we have been resurrected with him to new life, meaning now. We've been resurrected with Christ to obey. Because what I don't want is the life that sin brings. I don't want that life. I want what they had in the garden. For however few minutes or hours or days they had it, I want that again. I want, the, I want to be an imager of God. I want, because, because as God said, that was very good. Don't you love how he said after each day, that was good? And that was good. And, that, and then when he gets to the sixth day, he said that was very good. When he had made people who obeyed, he said that was good. And it wasn't that it was good for him. The point was that it was good for us. That that life of imaging God, being as human as we could ever be, is good. It's good for you. And I think that's what it means to live by faith. 
Because what the world tells us is that that is not good. Every day, you are bombarded with messages that says that obeying God is not good. The, the constant message is, live like this, contrary to God. That's the good life. That's, what's, that's what culture bombards us with every day, is the same lie that Adam and Eve got in the garden, which is that there is a better way to live than the very good way that God gave. And so what you have to do, and what I have to do, is trust that despite all this conflicting evidence, all this seeming, this seeming contrary messages, that I have to trust that what is the very good life, what is the most human life I could ever live, is the life lived as an image of God. And that's not my heart unless God gives me a new heart. That's not my desire unless he takes the heart of stone and gives me a heart of flesh. And when he does that, it helps me see. My eyes are open. I realize that is the good life. But I've got to believe because tomorrow TV is going to tell me something different. And the radio is going to tell me something different. And my coworkers are going to tell me something different. And circumstances and hardship are going to tell me something different. And what I need to keep doing is walking by faith, believing that imaging God is the very good life. That was the point, Peter says, of your election. Was to be human again was to obey again, was to get that new heart so that you could live as an imager of God again. Because left to yourself and left to myself, I would listen to the lie. But Peter says, God chose you so you could, you could obey again. Peter doesn't say, God chose you, so come on, man. Like, can't you just behave? That's not what he says. That's what I say to my kids in the back seat of the car after I gave them ice cream. But what he says is, you get to obey again. That's the whole point. Do you see that obedience is a gift? Do you see obedience as a gift? Do you see it as, I get to obey again. I can now obey again. And that's the good life, the very good life that God created us for. That's what Peter's saying here. In fact, he says it's not your work. Look what he says. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, verse 2, in, or some translations say, through the sanctification of the Spirit. He's making the point, listen, you're not going to obey on your own. Left to yourself with your heart of stone, you will not obey. But what you're getting is sanctification through the Spirit. In other words, sanctification is the fancy word for saying that God increasingly changes your heart and thus because of that changes your life. I have been saved. In a moment, I was declared righteous. It will take a lifetime for me to act more righteous. 
And it will take longer if I don't understand that that is the good life. That is the human life, the most human life you could ever live. If I understand that living in obedience is how I was made originally, in the garden, how we were made, that that's how we should operate. If we understand that obedience is what we are made for, then we will understand what a gift uh, Peter is talking about here when he says, you've been chosen among all the people who have ever lived. You were chosen, if you trust Christ, to obey. It's a gift to obey. You will never be more human than when you obey. The most human person who ever lived was Jesus. And he says, come follow me. Come be human like me. Come be as human as I am, he says. You can obey again. Not because you can do it, but because God chose and now the Spirit works in you. If you've trusted in Christ by faith, he says, I will, he who's began a good work in you is going to complete it. He will keep working in your heart to, to bring you to obedience because that is the point. Obedience is not of our power. But obedience is what we were chosen for and what Christ makes possible through the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's a famous saying by St. Augustine, one of the great church fathers. He wrote enormous amounts of literature. He wrote a book called Confessions. And in that he said, he has a famous statement in which he says, praying to the Lord, Lord, command what you will and will what you command. He's like, command what you in your perfect will want in my life. But then he says, Lord, I need you to will, to desire, to declare to be true what you have commanded because I can't do it of myself. And that's what, that's what Peter's getting at here when he says it's through the sanctification of the Spirit. God has chosen and commanded that you will obey and now he has given you the heart to obey. It's all of him. This, this process, this sanctification, is as much a part of our salvation as our justification. Sanctification is as much a part of our salvation as our justification. It is as much a part of our salvation that God is making me just as it is that he has declared me just. John Calvin said that there is a double grace in salvation, both justification and sanctification. One of the, one of the greatest scholars on Calvin said that sanctification is salvation just as much as justification is salvation. I don't know about you, but that's not how I've usually, I'm usually thinking about salvation. I tend to think of salvation almost entirely at times as I've been declared just, I've been forgiven, and that is a great thing. But it is just as great 
that I am being sanctified. That through Christ's power, I am being made to obey again. I'm being made to live again. I'm being made human again. Obedience is a blessing. It's not meant to be a burden. It's not meant to be a, oh, it's the least I can do. I guess I will obey. What we're meant to see through what Peter is saying here is it's the point of salvation. It's an opportunity. Jesus put it like this, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Right? Because he says, it is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, what he's saying is, you can keep disobeying. You can keep doing it your way. Man, that's a hard way to live. The world will tell you otherwise. They'll tell you it's a fun way to live. It's a great way to live. Do it your way. You be you. Jesus says, why don't you be me? Why don't you live like me? Why don't you come follow me? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is a hard way to live, to live in disobedience. But it is the way you were made to live, to live in obedience. And God in his grace promises life again through nothing other than faith. Every day this week, you'll be faced with the choice. Do I obey? Will you see it as a gift to choose the op- that, that God has given through a changed heart to obey? You'll have to decide, am I going to get angry? Or am I going to obey? Am I going to lie? Or am I going to obey? You'll get pounded with messages which say, lying's the better option. Lying's the less human option. You'll, be, you'll have to decide this week, are you going to be faithful to your spouse? There'll be temptations that say, this is the pleasure, this is the way of pleasure, this is the way of joy. Jesus says, come follow me. You'll have to decide whether you'll hate or whether you'll covet, whether you'll gossip or steal, whether you'll obey the government, whether you'll honor your father or your mother, whether you'll cheat at school or on your taxes or in your finances. You'll have to decide whether you'll follow Jesus and give generously, whether you'll bear one another's burdens, whether you'll show hospitality, whether you'll love your wife. All of those are part of the obedience that in God's grace, through Christ's work, by Christ's Spirit, we were saved for. Will you see, will you believe, will you trust that despite whatever messages you hear to the contrary, 
Obedience is life. If you do, if you see, if you walk by faith, if you trust that despite whatever contrary messages are there, you, can, you will live again. Not because we earn it, but because it's the gift that God has given us of obedience, of life. He says, there's two ways before you. Choose life. And by God's grace, he's given us the heart of flesh to choose life. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who has not surrendered their life to you, who has not trusted in you, that you would even this morning open their eyes, even this morning give them a heart of flesh, help them see the gift that you offer freely by grace. I pray this morning that as we go out this week, as we face temptations, as we're bombarded with contrary messages, that we would trust that your way is the best way, that your yoke is easy, that your burden is light, that your way is life. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who came to give us life. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Please stand.